Good morning. Hey, would you, uh, would you pray with me? Father, thanks for today. Uh, I am so thankful for the opportunity to share some of the things you've laid on my heart uh, with our church family today. Lord, I trust that you have uh, something for each one of us this morning. I trust that you have a word of encouragement, a word of correction, Lord, uh, a word of hope, comfort. I pray, Father, that uh, you would increase and I would decrease and that Jesus, uh, you would speak to us today, Lord. Help us to hear your voice and would you use the next half hour or so to draw us into a closer more intimate relationship with you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, this past Friday, my wife and I had some friends up from Louisville uh, to visit us. Now, Scott and Holly have a bit of a unique family. And what makes them unique is the fact that they have 11 kids. That's right, 11 children. And they are a really special family, and they're special to us. We love their kids. Uh, we're really, my wife and I have been really thankful for Scott and Holly's friendship. Uh, they've been just an encouragement to us over the years in both our marriage and in parenting. Now, 10 of their children are biological, okay? But their 11th child is adopted. And she's a four-year-old little girl from China, and her name is Abby Faye. I want to show you Abby Faye. I want to introduce you to Abby Faye. There's Abby Faye. And... Uh, so we got to spend some time with them on Friday, and Abby Faye is just absolutely adorable. They adopted her about two months ago, and she is a special needs child. And in China, special needs children are unwanted. And so Abby Faye was without a family. She was without parents. She was an orphan. But because of Scott and Holly's ridiculous love for children... <laughs> And because of their love for God and because of their love ultimately for Abby Faye, they adopted her into their family. And now Abby Faye has a new identity, a new family, and a new future. And so today we're continuing this series called Bad Coffee Mugs. And the point is we've all read or heard statements that sound good, they sound nice, maybe they sound true, but are they really? And this morning we're looking at this statement here. We are all God's children. I'm excited about this series because I get to drink on stage. <laughs> How about one more just for the fun of it? Josh Rogers makes fun of me because I make that face every time I take a drink of coffee. Um, but this morning we're looking at this statement, are we? We are, we are all children of God. But are we? Is that true? Are we all children of God? Well, in your notes, we're going to dive right in. Let me give you a definition of a child of God, and then we're going to spend the rest of the morning kind of working through this definition. If you want to write this down, a child of God has been adopted by God by believing in Jesus, confessing his name, and receiving the Holy Spirit. We're going to walk through the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn to the book of Ephesians, or you want to grab one of the Bibles underneath you or pull one up on your phone. In the, letter of, uh, in, the Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes this letter so that the Christians in Ephesus can better understand their identity as children of God. I'm not going to hold this mug the whole time. <laughs> My hands move too much. And so in it, we're going to see Paul here in Ephesians. We're going to see Paul describe who the children of God are and how one becomes a child of God and how to live out 
of your identity as a child of God. So let's start in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. Follow along as I read. Praise be to the God and, Fa- God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Paul starts out this letter by saying, all praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing because we are united with Christ. Paul assumes that his readers are children of God. And then he makes a really insightful statement. He says, and here's the phrase I want to draw your attention to, in verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Look at that phrase. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. In this one phrase, the apostle Paul goes all the way back to the beginning. He goes all the way back to before God created the heavens and the earth, and he says, God chose us. God wanted a family for himself. Before my wife and I had children, we made the conscious decision that we wanted a family. Well, this was God's original intent. This was God's original plans. God created each of us with the intent that we would all become children of God. And the first two chapters of Genesis, chapter 1 and 2, paint a scene where God creates man and woman, and then he immediately pursues this intimate relationship with them, the kind of relationship that a father has with his children. And in that scene, we see God interacting with Adam and Eve. He talks to them. He walks with them. He shows personal concern for them. He takes responsibility, as a loving father does, to provide for their needs. And Adam and Eve, they experience unhindered intimacy with their heavenly father. They depend on their father to guide their life. They trust him to meet their needs. They find their identity and their purpose in their relationship with him. And then they have this unhindered relationship with each other as well. There's no conflict. There's no hurtful words, no spiteful attitudes, no selfish motives, no lying or stealing, only love and kindness, gentleness and respect. And so Genesis 1 and 2 paints the scene of a beautiful, joyful life. I don't know about you. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Wouldn't you love to experience that kind of life? Isn't that what we all desire and what we want? Well, this was God's original intent, but this is not quite the experience, the kind of life we experience, is it? So what went wrong? Well, As a creator and the author of their life, God revealed to Adam and Eve how he designed life to work. And as a parent of young children, I often find myself trying to teach my kids how life works. And one of the things God told Adam and Eve was that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they they were to eat of this tree, that they would die. Now, what is this tree that's called the tree of knowledge of, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, there are a number of thoughts on this, but in essence, the tree represents the opportunity to live autonomously. For Adam and Eve, the tree represented independence. 
Living autonomously means I choose to live independently by myself. I separate myself from others. One author defines it this way. He says, autonomy means choosing oneself as the source of determining what is right and wrong in life, rather than relying on God to define right and wrong for us. So to live autonomously, to live independent and separate from God, is ultimately the fundamental nature of sin. It's at the heart of what sin is. And that sin, God says, is a road that leads to death. See, this is the temptation that Adam and Eve faced, and it's the temptation that you and I face every single day. We want to determine what's right and wrong. We want to play the role of God in our life. We want to do things our way. Anytime you get the urge to have life your way, that's the sin nature of Adam and Eve that's been passed down to you. And God told Adam and Eve, don't try to live independent of me. Don't try to figure out life on your own or figure it out uh, for yourself. Instead, he said, take my word for it. Parents, how often do you just look at your kids and say, please take my word for it? He says, take my word for it. If you try to live independent of me, it will lead to death. Well, Satan steps in in that garden scene, and he lies to them, and he takes God's word, and he twists it, and he says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan says, your eyes will be opened. Well, that was true. Their eyes would be opened, but he lied about the consequences. They wouldn't be like God. They would be separated from God. And so Adam and Eve are faced with a choice. See, God has given each of us this wonderful, amazing gift, and it's called free will. God gives us the choice, the opportunity to either live life how he designed it to work and how he designed it to be lived, to live dependent on God as the source of authority in life, or to live independent and separate ourselves from him. Unfortunately, they chose not to take God's word for it. They fell for the temptation, and they chose independence. And they separated themselves from their father, and thus sin and death entered into the world. And, and ever since then, we've been living in a broken world, and we're broken people. So then the question is, well, how was God going to fix this? What's the solution to this problem? What was his rescue plan? Well, Paul reveals that to us in Ephesians 1. Let's look back at the text again, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 5, Paul tells us that God's rescue plan was adoption through Jesus Christ. See, Jesus was called the second Adam because Jesus did what Adam failed to do. Jesus lived in complete dependence on his heavenly father throughout his earthly life. He never lived independent of his father. He lived a sinless life. And then Jesus paid, uh, Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins, paid for your sins and mine. And he made a way where there was no way. And now there's an opportunity for us to be adopted back into God's family. Now, Here's what's curious to me. Why would, why would the Apostle Paul use the illustration of adoption here in the book of Ephesians to describe this process, to describe God's rescue plan? Well, in Roman culture at that time, 
when Paul's writing to the uh, Ephesians, adoption was practiced in similar ways as it is today. And there are a few specific consequences if you were adopted in Roman culture. And he, here, here's what they were. Number one, the adopted son lost all the rights to his old family, but he gained all the rights of a fully legitimate son to his new family. He actually got, legally speaking, a new father. Number two, the child also became heir to his father's estate. So if there were other sons in this family, the adopted son would be co-heir with them. Third consequence of adoption in that day was that the old life of the adopted son was essentially wiped out. For instance, if, they were any, if there were any debts, any outstanding debts, they were legally canceled at the moment of adoption. They were wiped out as if they had never been. So this was really good. If you had uh, a student loan and you were adopted, your student loan was wiped out. So who's in favor of that? Yes. Amen? Amen. We have adoption everywhere. The point was that the adopted son was regarded as a new person entering into a new life, and the past had nothing to do with his new life. Can you see why Paul used this illustration? Because all of the consequences that happened to a child in that culture that was adopted are true of us. That those of us who are adopted children of God, we have a new father. We've gained the rights that come with being God's child. Our old debts are wiped out. Our sins are forgiven. We've been given a new life and a new identity. And we are now co-heirs with Christ. And we have a new hope awaiting us in heaven. So this begs the question, how does one go about being adopted? Well, Paul answers the question for us in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll skip down to verse 13 and 14. If you're following along, look at verse 13 and 14. Paul says, And you also were included in Christ, you were adopted, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, Paul says, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul says that we were included in Christ, we were adopted in Christ when we heard and believed the gospel. He says, when you believed. Our adoption comes about when we choose to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, the word for believe here means more than just an intellectual belief. The Bible says even the demons believe. It's one thing to say, well, sure, I believe in Jesus. I mean, if you go to Israel today, everyone believes that Jesus was a real person. The word for belief here means much more than that. It means to place your confidence in or to entrust yourself to. That those who have placed their confidence and their trust in Jesus Christ, those who have believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins as Savior and who submit to him as Lord of their life, it's those who are adopted by God. Here's how John puts it in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. John says, Yet to all who did receive him, to all those who believed in his name, this is Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word right there in verse 12 is key. It's critically important. The word right means it's power of choice, a liberty of doing as one pleases, permission. Listen, God has given us the power and the liberty and the freedom to choose him. 
Look at another passage, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. Paul says in Romans, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's believing from our heart. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. A natural result result of believing Jesus is Lord is confessing it. You know, Jesus can be a lot of good things. He can be a lot of things. He could be a, a good teacher. He could be a prophet. But for the children of God, we confess Jesus as Lord of our life. And when we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. Look back at Ephesians 1 again. We're going to look again at verses 13 and 14. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were, look at this, marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. In Roman culture, in order for adoption to be valid, you had to have witnesses. You had to have witnesses to confirm that the adoption took place. When we believe and we confess God sends his spirit into our hearts, and the Holy Spirit now serves as our witness, and the Holy Spirit confirms that we are now God's children. Look how Paul says it in Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is his rescue plan, adoption. How's it come about? Because you're his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. God sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts, and it's the Holy Spirit who calls out or who testifies, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God's also made you an heir. So when we believe in Jesus Christ, God sends us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who causes our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. Listen. When you and I, when you and I have a desire to be with our Heavenly Father, it's evidence we are God's child. And if you don't find yourself ever wrestling with that desire, it's cause for, for concern. Because the children of God want to be with their Father. And the Spirit of God cries out from our heart, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God prompts our heart to turn our heart and our attention towards our Heavenly Father. Okay, so let's review the definition one more time. A child of God has been adopted by God by believing in Jesus Christ, confessing His name, and receiving the Holy Spirit. So let me just ask you this question point blank. Are you a child of God? Are you a child of God? If you've never believed in your heart or confessed with your mouth and received the Holy Spirit, you are not saved and you're not a child of God, the Bible says. And therefore, you don't have the rights and the privileges of being a child of God. And that means your sins have not been forgiven. And that means your relationship with God has not been restored. And you are still living independent and separate from God. And the Bible says you are on the path to living eternally separated from God in hell. 
That's what hell is. Hell is living eternally separated from your father and your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And if that describes you, if you're sitting here this morning, and there's a few of you who this describes, there's a few of you who would say, I know I'm not a child of God. I want you to listen carefully to me. God is pursuing you right now in this moment. God is drawing you to himself. You are sitting at church listening to this message. It is not a coincidence. God is patiently waiting for you to repent. To repent means to change your mind, to change your direction of your life, to turn to Jesus. Would you look at what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. No, he is patient. He's being patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is being patient with you. He doesn't want to live eternally separated from you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So today you have the opportunity. You have the opportunity today to choose Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, to declare Jesus as Lord of your life. And if you're ready to do that today, I'd love for you after the service to come down front and to talk to me after the service is over. I'll be right down here. And in just a few weeks, as mentioned, on May 1st, we're hosting a baptism service. It would be a great time to express your faith, to confess Jesus is Lord by being baptized. Baptism is your way to identify with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's one of the most powerful steps of obedience you can take in your relationship with him. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you have someone in your life who's not a child of God. Maybe you've got a family member or a friend and you've been praying for them. You've been trying to reach them. Let me share with you this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Paul says to Timothy, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Listen, I want you to keep praying for family members and friends who are not Christ followers. Keep praying. Use this passage. Bring this back up to the Lord. This is, I like to use this passage. I like to remind the Lord. I pray for lost friends. I like to say, hey, Lord, you said you want them to be saved. In 1 Timothy, you said this. This is your word. You said you want them to come to knowledge of truth. Would you do that in their life? I agree with this passage. I agree with you, God. You want this person to come into a life-giving relationship with you. So keep praying for your lost family members and friends. God wants everyone to be adopted as children of God. Now, most of us sitting in this room would say, yes, I am a child of God. And look what Paul has to say to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is the reason Paul wrote, one of the reasons why Paul wrote the letter in Ephesians. As a prisoner for the Lord then, that's Paul just referencing his own kind of where he's at right now. He says this, he says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Key phrase, I urge you to live a life worthy. The word urge is, it actually means to beg, I beg you, Paul says, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He says to the children of God, listen, believing in Jesus is just the beginning. Being adopted into God's family is just the first step. We must grow and live out our lives as children of God. And to be called by God here, this phrase, means to be saved or to belong to God, to be accepted as one of his. 
So we don't become worthy enough to be called. It's because we are called, because we are children, we live lives worthy of all that it means to be children of God. And this is a passion of Paul's. You see it throughout the whole New Testament. He's constantly encouraging and challenging the children of God throughout the New Testament to live like it, to live a life worthy of being a child of God. I'm going to show you a few examples. Let's look at this first one in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. He says, for this reason, he's, he's going to pray for them. Since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that, why? Why is Paul praying for them? Why is Paul praying for them? So they may live, live lives worthy of the Lord. Let's look at another one. In 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says it again, different letter. Different group of people. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. How about one more in 2 Thessalonians? Paul, once again, with this in mind. Wait. Uh, that's not the right verse. Take that down. I'll read it. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay, Judy. Uh, let me read it out loud to you. With this in mind, Paul says, we constantly pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling. Over and over and over again, Paul says to the children of God, live like children of God. I think that's the message today for most of us sitting in this room. Are you living like a child of God? D.A. Carson says this. D.A. Carson's a pastor and author. He says, in a strange paradox, Paul is constantly telling people, in effect, to become what they are. That is, since we are already children of God, because of his free grace to us in Christ, we must now become all the children should be. God has graciously called us. Now we must live up to that calling. We're not strong enough or disciplined enough to take these steps on our own. This is why Paul prays as he does. That leads us to a few practical steps that you can take this week. Let me give you three practical steps. This is in your notes that you can take to live a life worthy of the Lord. And number one is to pray. If Paul had to pray for the believers in the New Testament to live like children of God, then we should too. I'm going to give you specific prayers. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, and Ephesians 3, 16 and 19. Those are two really, really, really powerful prayers. Those prayers at the heart of why Paul writes the letter. In Ephesians 1, Paul essentially says this. Here's, how, here's what he prays. He says, Father, help me. Help them to know you better. So let me, let, me tell you how to, let me tell you how to turn Ephesians 1 prayer into uh, your own language. Really simple. Father, help me to know you better. That's what Paul prays for in Ephesians 1. He actually says, I, I'm praying that you would know God better. This is how you can pray this for yourself. You can say, Father, help me to know you better. Here's a second, uh, Ephesians 3. Here's how Paul, I'm going to summarize Ephesians 3 for you. Father, help me to understand and experience your love. Father, help me to understand and experience your love. Help me to know you better. Help me to understand and experience your love. Two great prayers you can pray for yourself. You can pray these prayers for your spouse. You can pray them for your kids. If you are discipling someone and you're investing in someone's life, one of the greatest investments you can make in their life is praying on their behalf. These are two powerful prayers that you can pray for people. Pray these prayers on behalf of our church family. You want to pray for Genesis Church? Don't know what to pray for? Pray these two prayers. That God would help us as a church family live as children of God. Now, the second step you can take to live a life worthy of the Lord is to stop thinking like the world. To stop 
thinking like the world. A few paragraphs in Ephesians, a few paragraphs after Paul says, live a life worthy of the Lord, then he reveals one of the obstacles that keep children from living like children of God. Look at it. Chapter 4, verse 17. Here's what he says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He says, don't live like the Gentiles. The term Gentiles is used two different ways in the New Testament. It's a term that describes anyone's not Jewish, but it's also a term used to describe the multitudes of people who are not believers in Jesus. He says, stop thinking like the multitudes who don't believe. Stop thinking like the world thinks. Why? Because their thinking is futile. The word for futile means devoid of truth. Paul says they don't know the truth, but as children of God, in Jesus Christ, you've learned the truth, so live like it. Another question for you. What shapes your thinking? The world or the truth? That's why we're doing this series. Because so often we allow the world to shape our thinking instead of the truth of God's word. Do you think like the world thinks or do you think like a child of God? I was talking with my friend Scott and he said one of the challenges that you face when adopting a child is helping the child relationally bond with the family. Abby Faye still views her world and still thinks as an orphan living in an orphanage. She's been there for the first four years of her life. Now she's being given a new life and a new family. And so one of Scott and Holly's primary tasks is to help her mind adjust, to help her think differently, to help her view her world through her new identity. The same is true of us as children of God. This world is not our home. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And listen, with the world of politics right now, I don't know about you, but don't you feel like our culture especially in America, is unraveling at the seams. Anybody else feel like that? Anybody else feel like our culture could just crumble to pieces at any day? Let me ask you this. What if the unraveling of our culture was to lead to thousands and thousands of people in America coming to know Jesus? Would it be worth it? I'd love to see us live in peace and prosperity in this country. But you know what I want more? I want God's kingdom to come and his will to be done here on earth. I want thousands and thousands of people who are lost and going to hell come to meet Jesus, encounter him, give their lives to him, and experience new life. See, this is, what children of, this is the way children of God think. We don't think like the world. And so when the world unravels around us, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and we have faith that God is going to accomplish his purposes and his plans. And as children of God, he invites us to be a part of it. The world thinks differently than children of God do. That's why Paul says this. Well, look at this other passage in Ephesians 4. Paul says, you were taught with regard to the form, your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful de desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Listen, as children of God, we were created to live righteously and holy. And holy. We were formed and we are being transformed into the image of Jesus. And that leads us to step number three that you can take to live a life worthy of the Lord, and that's imitate Jesus.
So number one, you want to live a life worthy of the Lord? You want to live as a children of God? Pray and ask God for help. Children look to their parents to help them understand their identity. We should look to our Heavenly Father and ask Him for help. Number two, stop thinking like the world. And begin to view things through the lens of the Bible and through the lens of the Scripture and through the lens of the story that God is unfolding across the earth. And number three, we've got to be like Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, kind of summarizes everything up in the first four chapters. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How do, how do dearly children live? They live like Jesus. Because Jesus was the perfect son of God. Let me ask you a question. As I was studying for this message and preparing for this, uh, a question came to mind. And here was the question. Kevin, if your children lived as if you were not their parent, how would that make you feel? So let me turn that question to you. If your children lived as if you were not their parent, how would that make you feel? Think about that. As I contemplated that and pondered that this past week, my heart broke. Wouldn't your heart break if your children lived, if your children lived as if you were not their parent? That would break break our hearts, wouldn't it, as parents? If they didn't live understanding that our identity is in us, and, and they didn't live as knowing that we love them, and that we care about them, and that we want to provide for them, and that we want to guide them, and that we have their best interest in mind, I, I, I think, I don't know, it's just my opinion. I think when the children of God don't live like the children of God, I think it breaks our Heavenly Father's heart. And that's why Paul says over and over again in the New Testament, live like a child of God. Nothing would break Scott and Holly's heart more if Abby Faye, who now is adopted into their family, who has a new identity and a new future and a new hope and all the rights and the privileges that become with being in Scott's, Scott and Holly's family, nothing would break their heart more than if Abby Faye ends up living nothing like Scott and Holly is her parents. We have a good father who deeply loves us. He demonstrated that love in Jesus Christ. Let us live lives worthy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. And while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. And that whoever whoever believes in Jesus Christ, whoever puts our faith and their trust in Christ is saved and is adopted as your children, Lord, thank you, God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know you better. Help us to relate to you like a child relates to their father. Help us, Lord, to understand and experience your love for us as your children. God, I pray that you would help us to stop thinking like the world and help us to think like your children. God, help us to walk as Jesus walked. Help us imitate Christ, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would bear much fruit in us and through us and that our lives and our church family would bring you glory. Amen.